You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You are your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. O God in heaven, how we thank you for your law. And we acknowledge that it is righteousness. It reveals your character. It is the standard for our life. And it is the teacher, the instructor of how we ought to live. And your law points us to our Lord Jesus, who is righteousness himself, and who forgives us when we violate your law. And so we thank you for our Savior. We pray for your Holy Spirit to anoint the hearing and preaching of your word this morning, that you would strengthen your people, that you'd save sinners, and that the this, this sermon and what is preached would be anointed of God uh, for all of these ends. In Christ's name, amen. We're in the Ten Commandments, as you know, and we have been in the Ten Commandments now for some time. And the Ten Commandments are the natural law. This is the law of nature. It is the very constitution of reality. I've said that before, and I say it again by way of reminder for you. And the Ten Commandments are still in effect. This is the righteous standard that God has revealed to us. And I'm spending a few weeks now looking at the seventh commandment. So this will be the third week we're in the seventh commandment, and I think I'm going to have at least one or two more weeks 
in the seventh commandment after this Sunday. But the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And this is a prohibition. And if the commandment prohibits adultery, then the commandment demands the very opposite good. If it prohibits adultery, it demands the very opposite good. And so if it's prohibiting adultery, that means it's demanding that marriage be held in esteem, that the marriage bed be honored, that if you can, that you pursue marriage, that you enjoy marriage, and that you be intimate within marriage. And so if it prohibits adultery, then it commands the opposite, and I listed some of the opposites. This commandment to, uh, to value and esteem marriage and to honor the marriage bed is a commandment that is to affect the heart. And the commandment against the forbidding of adultery is also something that ought to affect the heart. And so this is we're, what we're attempting to do as we come to the law of God. We're not looking simply and only for external conformity, but we're looking to govern the very disposition of our hearts. And so hopefully you're getting that out of this series. Last week, I gave you a positive vision of the beauty of marriage. And um, I think this is important for us to have in this, the dark days in which we find ourselves, to have a positive vision of marriage, because we live in a culture that mocks and shows contempt and disdain for that which is good. And instead of showing contempt and disdain for that which is good, we want to exalt and honor and celebrate that which is good. And something that I, I didn't quite pastorally anticipate as I preached on this positive vision of marriage was how raw of an issue this is for some of you. And it is. I'm having talked to several of you and heard from several of you this week how um, you've had the, your negative experiences with marriage and the rawness that that's left are some of you are single and you so desire to be married. And um, there are people right now, as I preach this, who find themselves in miserable and cold marriages. And so these are things that are very difficult to deal with. And perhaps hearing a positive vision on marriage makes it even more difficult to deal with for some of you. Just a few words on that. It's not a surprise, I don't think it should surprise anyone, that if marriage is, and I really believe it is, is God's greatest earthly blessing, when it functions rightly, then it shouldn't surprise us that it will be the greatest misery when it functions wrongly. When marriages are not ordered properly, they quickly become your greatest misery. When they are ordered properly, they quickly become your greatest blessing. And so both of these things are true. Isn't that the case? That, I mean, it's one thing if you have a miserable job, but you've got to go home at the end of the day after your miserable day at work. And what a beautiful thing it is to go home to um, a peaceful, loving, warm home. But what a terrible thing it is to go home to a cold, miserable home that's at war. And so these are... This is painful for a lot of people. And somehow when dealing with pain, 
of marriage or whatever else the pain is that you're dealing with, we have to press on as Christians and focus on those things that are before us. And the Lord has promised for those who have faith in God and in Jesus Christ that always the best is yet to come. It will always be such for those who are Christians. And when presented with God's ideal, which is what I did last week, I presented you with God's ideal, our experiences, no matter how idyllic God's presentation and vision for marriage is, on this side of Eden, our experiences will never line up with God's ideal. They will never line up with God's ideal. However, we must marvel and stand in wonder at God's perfect purposes and at God's ideal as we look at all of his ideals, whether it's marriage or any other vision that he has for the good of things in Scripture. And so none of us experience idyllic existence on this side of heaven. And when the lack of the ideal brings about pain in our lives, we have to cast our burdens upon the Lord, trusting that he cares. And I will show you in my first point, believing that is God's elect, we are the elect of God, then he, has, he is employing our circumstances to sanctify us. He's employing our circumstances to sanctify us. All of our circumstances, no matter how difficult or good you perceive them to be, are your servants. They are your servants sent by God to sanctify you. And he has not called us to pursue an ideal as much as he's called us to pursue sanctification. And it's in the pursuit of sanctification that we get closer to the ideal that he's presented for us. But I'll talk about that more in a moment. But no matter where you find yourself today, I want you to remember this, is that Christ forgives sinners, that Christ uses our pain for our sanctification, and that Christ calls us to contentment and thankfulness in all situations. He forgives sinners. He uses our pain to sanctify us. He calls us to contentment and thankfulness in all situations, and he promises to carry our burdens. So remember all of that as we go through this in any other circumstance. And so as I said last week, I want to spend some time now talking about cultivating a good marriage, godly, honorable marriage. How does one cultivate these things? Well, I think in order to cultivate a healthy marriage, a healthy home, we need to understand what the purpose of marriage is. So last week I presented you a positive vision for marriage. And today what I'm going to talk about is the purpose of marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? So if you're entering into marriage, the question that I'm asking you is why? Is why? And then I hope to next week start giving you some practical scriptural insights in how to accomplish God's purpose in marriage. I'm going to give you five purposes in marriage this morning. Five. Number one, God's purpose in marriage is your sanctification. Number one, it's your sanctification. Number two, God's purpose in marriage is preventing immorality. Number three, God's purpose in marriage is companionship. Number four, 
God's purpose in marriage is godly offspring. Number five, God's purpose in marriage is to point you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, our, our Savior, our perfect Savior. And so we'll continue on in this today on the purpose of marriage, and then next week we'll start getting into some more practical type of things. But there's a risk, as I talk about the purpose of marriage, that some will come from last week's sermon thinking that the purpose of marriage is to experience perpetual romance. I think that there's a risk in that. It's to experience perpetual romance. And so I shared the sermon last week, and there would be some might have left the church service thinking, well, the purpose in marriage is to live a fairy tale. And some, I think women might be tempted towards that type of thinking more than men. Every day, my husband's going to ride over the hills and sweep me off my feet. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> this, is, this is what your, your temptation will be. <laughs> and, and so, but, you know, we've got to have, what is God's purpose? It's not a perpetual romance novel, okay? Or every week your wife is going to act as if you rode over the hills and swept her off the feet, right? And so women have a temptation, I think, to think that it's a perpetual romance. Men, young men might have the temptation to imagine that it is intimacy with no end. So this might be the ditch that the young men will fall into. But either way, these are aspects of marriage that are to be celebrated, but these are not the purposes of marriage. There are immature views of marriage. And if you're striving for these immature views of marriage, you will be disappointed and delusioned, disillusioned when you enter into marriage. Okay? So there is no perfect marriage, and if you have these visions of what marriage ought to be as a perpetual romance novel, then I think you're going to be disillusioned quickly. Now, so what should you be striving for? Is it to create this kind of idealistic vision within marriage? Is that what you be, should be striving for? Is that the goal of marriage? What is God's goal for your marriage, I think, is a better question. What is his goal for marriage? What's his goal for it? And here's our first purpose. The pur first purpose of marriage is your sanctification. See, I underlined your. That's singular. See, I, I didn't say the purpose of marriage is your husband's sanctification or your wife's sanctification. I'm talking to you. So you, this is, you're not, hopefully you're not sitting there elbowing the person next to you. You're not the Holy Spirit, okay? The, I'm, your sanctification is an individual. That is the purpose of God in your marriage. You is a person, is a person. Now, I could look at many scriptural passages here, 
But I want to look first, I want to look, as I look at this point, I want to focus on Romans 8, 28 through 29, where it says, it'll be up on the screen, and we know, some of you will have this memorized, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foredue, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. Two things I want you to note from that passage. All things are working together for the good of those who love God. Everything, including your marriage. And so this tells me that everything in your life is a soldier in an army sent from God to carry out God's purpose in your life. There's not one accident in your life. Past and present and future, it's all part of God's design to bring about God's greatest purpose in your life, which is your own sanctification. And the other thing I want you to notice in this passage, I just said it, is that that purpose is that you are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, which is sanctification. The entire world is God's servant to accomplish God's objective in your life, which is to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ, to sanctify you. Sanctification, the purpose or the process of becoming more holy, the purpose of becoming more like Christ. And so you're, you're like this, you're like this stone or a, a block of granite that, um, God is slowly chiseling away to make into a beautiful statue. So you have to see yourself as that. And all of the situations that God sends into your life, it's the little chisel being hit by the hammer. Tick, tick, and this is a process. God's using the circumstances of your life to change you and to beautify you. And when I say beautify you, what I mean is to make you more holy and to transform you into the image of Christ, to teach you obedience. By faith. Everything is designed by God for that, especially marriage. And so if somebody comes to me and requests marriage counseling, which happens and which is uh, something I welcome, I do not see it as my opportunity to help someone have a better marriage. Did you hear that? If somebody comes to me and asks for marriage counseling, I don't see it as me helping them have a better marriage. I don't believe that's the job of the marriage counselor, especially the pastor, but any marriage counselor. It's not to sit down with a couple and say, here's how you have a good marriage. The purpose of so-called marriage counseling is to see that each person who enters the counseling room, the pastoral counseling room, is conformed to the image of Christ. So that a man sits before me and says to me, I say, well, what's your problem? She's my problem. I said, I didn't ask about her. I said, what's your problem? Right? What's your sin that you have to deal with? The woman says, well, I said, what's your problem? Well, he's my problem. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Your problem. Your sin is what I'm talking about. Right? And people need to get this 
into their minds. It's an opportunity to help each individual become like Christ. And when each becomes like Christ, the marriage becomes more enjoyable. See, marriage is about your sanctification. Your sanctification. The, the problem comes down to this. The, you know, a lady is, is disillusioned with her husband and, and she entered into marriage banking on the fact that he was going to be godlier and she should have entered into the marriage banking on the fact that God's going to use the marriage to make her more godly. And the same thing with the guy. He enters into the marriage banking on the fact that she's going to be changing. She's going to do the one that's changing. And he should enter into the marriage banking on the fact that God's going to use the marriage to make him more godly. This is the way that it's designed to work. And so the guy says, well, if my wife was more agreeable, I'd be less harsh. No, your job is to be less harsh, whether she's agreeable or not. If my husband would just pick up his socks, I wouldn't be such a nag. No, your job is to not be a nag, whether he picks up his socks or not. And this is the problem that people enter into. They think that their behavior, their sinful behavior, is excusable just because they encountered sin in the other person. Well, who did you think you were marrying? Right? Do you think you were marrying a perfect person? And I'm sorry to, to burst your bubble, but you didn't marry a perfect person, and the person you married didn't marry a perfect person. And so God has put your marriage, or put you in your marriage, so you can learn to obey God even when it's hard, and especially when it's hard. And so when you stand before God on Judgment Day, and if God says to you on Judgment Day, well, why didn't you treat your wife well? And you say, well, you it was the woman you gave me. Have you heard that one before? That's from the Garden of Eden, right? He says to you, why didn't you? It says to the woman, why didn't you? You, you, know, you know, the ladies, you stand before God on Judgment Day. Why didn't you um, treat your husband well? Well, it was this devil that you gave me, right? No, like... The whole idea of marriage is you are learning to be obedient no matter what the situation is. And this is what God calls you to. So you're primarily concerned in your marriage with your own obedience. Not striving to have this idyllic, romantic vision of what marriage is supposed to be. But striving to learn what it is to obey Jesus Christ in the situation in which you find yourself. And some lady, well, I'm waiting for him to do it. And she, he says, well, I'm waiting for her to do it. Well, you just do it. And trust the Lord in the situation. God expects obedience from you no matter what. When you submit to that concept, now you're starting to learn. This is revolutionary for some people. Because so many grew up in homes where it's acceptable to, you know, have a temper tantrum because you didn't get your own way. And mom and dad never told you to knock it off and held you to that. And so you grew up in a home where it's acceptable to have a temper tantrum, and you're taught that if you throw a temper tantrum, you get your own way. And then you bring that into marriage. Your mother and father did a terrible job preparing you for marriage, if that's the case. And then you get into marriage, and you figure you throw a temper tantrum, and I'll get my own way. 
I get sullen, I get my own way. I yell, I get my own way. Right? I get manipulative, I get my own way. Well, so, so now what you have to do, now that you're into this marriage and you've learned all these terrible habits because they weren't kind of, you weren't taught and disciplined when you were young, now what you have to do is you have to discipline yourself when you're old to figure it out and start learning obedience. But there's too many who were learned that if they throw a fit or if they cry hard enough or if they are really good at manipulating, then they're going to get their own way. They know how to make someone feel real guilty. Now I'll get my own way. And this never works. So what do you do if you're in a lousy relationship and the other person won't change? Well, I'll just read these two quotes from the Puritan pastor Richard Steele. He said of the man, he said, If meekness of wisdom will not prevail with thy wife, thou art undone in this world and she in the world to come. So you, what do you do if your wife isn't being meek and full of wisdom and you didn't marry a meek, wise woman and she's proving to be unsanctified? Well, you don't want to be undone in the next world. So you make sure that you're not undone in the next world and that you're obedient in this world and you'll trust the Lord with her. And you learn to treat her the way God's commanded you, even if she doesn't possess the meekness of wisdom? Or what if the husband is a challenge and a problem to live with? Richard Steele said similar. If the husband's government be too heavy, it is better for you to leave him to answer for his severity than for you to answer for your contempt. He said, leave him to answer for his severity. It's not just talking about leaving the house and leaving him and getting out of it. I'm leaving my husband. It's let him answer before God instead of you answer for your reaction to his bad behavior. And I hope, I hope this is helping some of you. But what, what I'm trying to show you in this little lesson on the purpose of marriage is that your job is to trust the behavior of your spouse to the Lord and control your own behavior. And that's God's objective for you. His purpose for you in marriage is sanctification. It's sanctification. And some of you say, well, you don't know this individual that I married. Well, yeah, but you knew him or her before you married him or her. I wish you thought about that back then. But now you're in the covenant of marriage and you've entered in it by your own will and volition and it is upon you to learn to submit to God in that situation. And so you're going to have to embrace that. What is God's purpose for your marriage? God's purpose for your marriage is your, you as an individual, your sanctification. Your sanctification. And if you can embrace that, now you're off to the races. Because then you'll learn contentment. You'll be at peace. And your actions will not be dependent. Your, your life won't be a reaction to somebody else's actions. Your life will now be simply actions that are derived from your stability that is coming off the fact that your eyes are fixed on God. 
Instead of running around, not taking responsibility for your behavior and blaming it on that woman that God gave you or that devil that God gave you. No, your eyes are fixed upon the Lord. And there's applications for others in this. Like if you're if your discontent is a single person, well, what do you think God's purpose in your singleness is? Your sanctification. To learn contentment. To learn to be thankful. To learn to desire God more than you desire a spouse. Right? So, So this is, there's application for this for everything. So, what's the purpose of marriage? Well, the first one that I'm presenting to you is your own sanctification as an individual. Your own sanctification. That's your purpose. That's God's purpose for you in your marriage is your sanctification. And so many don't get this, and they continue on like little children, blaming the other, only to wonder why they're so miserable. The purpose of marriage is your sanctification as an individual. So that's the first purpose I want to highlight to you from Scripture. And it could very well be the most important one because it will teach you contentment if you learn that. It will put your heart at rest. You'll be at peace if you learn that. And your life won't be a constant reaction. So here's the second purpose of marriage that I want to look at, and that is preventing immorality. And I say that specifically sexual immorality. This is a second purpose that I want to highlight. So God has given everyone, unless there's some health issues, an appetite for intimacy. In fact, the only reason you're sitting here today alive is because there were some people that had an appetite for intimacy. And if you go all the way up your family tree, you could say there's probably hundreds of people that had appetites for intimacy, if not thousands, and that's why you're here today. And so this is something that is natural. This is something that's good. This is something that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so this isn't something to be ashamed of. In fact, it is something that is given of God as he pronounced that the Garden of Eden was good. This was part of it, is that Men and women are given an appetite for sexual intimacy. Now, I think, during, I think it's likely that during the Victorian era, there was perhaps some prudishness on this, which is somewhat uh, off balance. And I think in our era, there's been a terrible reaction to that. And it's, it's worse than the Victorian era in that this, we have now unrestrained viola, vileness. So that, like I said last week, everyone is essentially, as it pertains to intimacy, everyone is essentially digesting rotten trash and showing you the food in their mouth as they chew on it. This is where we live now. But in the Bible, this is seen as a gift from heaven to be enjoyed in marriage, and that enjoyment is a safeguard against temptation. It's, uh, I'm intentionally speaking about, I'm going to intentionally speak about this particular issue of marital, marital intimacy in somewhat veiled terms. In our culture, everything's kind of out in the open with this stuff. But I think the Bible 
intentionally speaks about this in veiled terms because there's supposed to be a mystery to it. And it's supposed to be something that's private. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to show you where I'm getting this from, the purpose of marriage preventing sexual immorality. If you look at chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, it'll be up on the board, and I'm going to look at verses 2 through 5. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we look at this text, and we see a few commandments in this text of 1 Corinthians 7. The purpose of marriage being preventing sexual immorality. So one of the reasons that you should get married is, is this. In order to experience intimacy so you're not tempted to look for it elsewhere. And so in this we see a command to get married to one person and to one person of the opposite sex. You have to say that. And so in verse 2, it says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So this is actually a commandment. If you're experiencing um, the desire for intimacy, then what you should be doing is you should be channeling that to go out and, if you're a man, look for a wife, and if you're a woman, look for a husband. The, the channel, actually, this drive that God's given you should be such that you're you're, it's being harnessed in order to prepare you for marriage. Say, I'm going to, as a man, young man, I'm going to make myself a man who's worthy of a bride. And that's how you're going to channel this energy. Young lady, similarly, make yourself a lady worthy of a husband. And so, of course, you know, this is, means there's no, that we shouldn't be allowing for polygamy in the church because what does it say? You know, we live in strange times, so you have to clarify this. Each man should have his own wife, not five wives, right? And polyandry would be forbidden as, pertaining to this, as it pertains to this text too. Each woman should have her own husband. And we should think about this, that there should be a purpose in dating, I think. So dating is not a hobby. I think in our, in our culture, dating's become a bit of a hobby. Well, kids just date, and it's kind of what you do, and this is the way it goes. But any attempt to date is an attempt to, should be, scripturally speaking, to discern whether an individual is somebody worthy of marriage. So if you're dating, and you're in a dating relationship, the purpose of that relationship is to discern whether the person you're dating would be a suitable person to marry. And the minute you find out that that person is not suitable for marriage, goodbye. Okay? And if this person is a suitable person for marriage, then what are you waiting for? Right? It, it, then it's got to happen. So make it happen, guys. Right? There's a great theologian by the name of Beyonce who said, put a ring on it. <laughs> so this is... The command, though, is to get married. So if, she, if, if he or she is not worthy of marriage, or your parents 
for have good reason to think that, then goodbye. If he or she is worthy of marriage, then let's make it happen. I know someone that can help you. Okay? Now, that's the first thing we see in it. Then we see here a commandment not just to get married, but a commandment to not withhold intimacy within the context of marriage. Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So... And then verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is an interesting passage because in Roman society, this is written in the Greco-Roman world, Roman society diminished women and would never, ever have said that a Roman man, his wife has authority over him. Never would that have been said in Greco-Roman world, but here it does say that. It doesn't just say the man has authority over the woman's body. It says the woman has authority over the man's body. And so this is kind of a, Scripture presents a concept of meritable intimacy that goes against the grain of Roman thought. The Roman, the Roman men would have, of course, said, of course I got authority over my wife's body, but would have never thought my wife has authority over my body. But this is what it says. A wife has authority over her husband's body, and the husband has authority over the wife's body. And in the sexual relationship, each has authority over the other. And you know that this, this commandment, I think, is a very serious commandment. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, so he should be intimate with her. And the wife, likewise, to her husband, she should be intimate with him. And this is a, these are commandments in Scripture. And so if the commandment, the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery, the opposite of that is, you shall not withhold your husband's conjugal rights. You shall not withhold your wife's conjugal rights. You know that, I, I, my understanding is, and I've, I've read this, that Puritan congregations, if a wife was withholding the conjugal rights of her husband, or if a husband was withholding the conjugal rights of the wife, this, and this made its way um, to the elders of the church, and they wouldn't repent, they'd be put under, they'd be excommunicated from the church over withholding conjugal rights. They'd be put under church discipline for this. It's such a serious thing. I think that's scriptural. It's absolutely right. It's a, it's a sin to withhold intimacy from your spouse. And there's different reasons why people do this. They, they manipulate each other or they grow bitter with one another. I'm going to talk about bitterness next week. Or they're too tired or whatever it is. So if you're too tired, change your schedule. Go to bed early. Okay? But this is a, absolutely a commandment of God. And one of the reasons that God has commanded this or has told us to do this is because it prevents immorality. And then in verse 5, there's an even greater commandment that I think emphasizes this even more. It's a commandment to not defraud. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another. Now, the word deprive here could be translated steal, rob, or defraud. Meaning that to withhold intimacy in marriage is not just a seventh commandment violation, but an eighth commandment violation. It is theft. You hear me? The word here that I'm talking about, deprive, could be translated to steal, to rob, or defraud. 
So the withholding of sexual intimacy within the context of marriage is not just a seventh commandment violation, but it is an eighth commandment violation, which is you shall not steal. It's fraudulent. You enter marriage with the presupposition that there will be intimacy within the marriage, and then to enter the marriage and then withhold that intimacy means that you entered into the marriage on fraudulent grounds. You led somebody on. And so, and this is, the, he tells us why. Why would you not, why are you supposed to render unto each other their conjugal rights? Well, it says it here. Do not deprive one another in verse 5, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's my point. The purpose of marriage is to have sexual intimacy in order to prevent sexual immorality. And it says it right there. Verse 2 says it, because of the temptation to sexual intimacy, each man should have his own wife. Verse 5 says it, so that Satan may not tempt you. It's as plain as day. Now, if somebody is, you know, if your wife is withholding sexual intimacy from you, it's, that's not an excuse to commit adultery. Never is. Or if your husband's withholding from you, it's not an excuse to commit adultery. No, adultery is always wrong, no matter the situation. But it, it is telling us what is a matter of fact true, and that is that a lack of intimacy does open up temptation. It does open up temptation. And there are similar commands elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Proverbs 5, I'll just read it to you, verse 15 through 20. It says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So what's... He's saying here, instead of going after the forbidden woman, you need to honor the marriage bed. So that's as plain as day in Scripture. So those are my first two points this morning. The purpose of marriage. What's number one? Your sanctification. And number two, what's number two? It's to prevent immorality. And I have three more points. And we're 42 minutes into this. So... Um, I think we're going to call it quits on that one. I think we're going to call it quits. So let's, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll be back next week, God willing, and we'll go over the three more purposes of marriage. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray to you, and we pray for your blessing upon all who are gathered here today, and we pray that you would fill them with your spirit, and that uh, those who are married would experience it as a great gift and that our focuses and our hearts would be primarily upon our own sanctification. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.